0: We're going to go from the mountaintop of that song right into the, the valley, the pit of false teaching with the clip that I promised you last Sunday morning. I said I was going to lead into this Sunday night's Q&A with a, uh, just a brief clip. Let me just set this up quickly, and I want to be quick because we have a lot of questions tonight, and I'm going to have to be brief on those. But uh, you will remember from last Sunday morning that uh, one of the things Jesus indicated that false teachers do is that they specifically target widows— to line their own pockets, and in fact in luke 's account of Jesus blistering the Pharisees, that is the only that is the only action of false teachers that jesus mentions in luke 's account and uh, It should not surprise us since Jesus said it that this is exactly what goes on. There is a man by the name of Mike murdoch who very he 's not as prominent as some of the other bigger names, but uh, he He has come up with a fifty eight dollars seed scam that 's what it is i won 't take the time to tell you how he came up with the figure of fifty eight dollars it 's a passage of scripture that he totally twisted, turned on its head, and basically says, "If you will send me fifty eight dollars god will, that will be seed money that God will grow and bless you immensely which the, the the whole you know basis of that is totally bogus, but the worst part is in this very brief clip is the way that he prays on widows, a widow sitting at home thinking that God is talking to her to send him money. So with that as background, let's run that brief clip of Mike Murdoch targeting widows. There is a widow who is watching Daystar, watching us right now. And you're sitting there and your thoughts are, wow. I wish I was young again and I wish I had a business, but I'm on a fixed income. And I don't know where I would get the $58. That's what makes it faith. That's what makes it faith. And imagine the pressure of a widow sitting at home saying, if I don't send him $58, I don't have faith. And I'll tell you, it's established fact, as I mentioned last Sunday, that the majority of money in the false teachers' coffers comes from widows. And here's an example of one who specifically targets widows. It's heinous. It is absolutely heinous, which is why Jesus used some of his strongest words and why Peter uses some very strong words to say it is absolutely positively certain that one day God will judge these false teachers who do this kind of thing, who twist Scripture and make fortunes off of unsuspecting people, and especially off of widows. Well, with that as sort of a lead-in, I have a lot of questions tonight. And uh, one of the questions, let's see if I can find it quickly because it's related to that. I don't really keep the the questions in any certain order, but there was one related to uh, false teachers and television, and I don't know if I'll be able to find it quickly. I may just have to... uh, Yeah, here we go. Here it is. So we'll use this one to lead in. It says, Pastor Brian... As we are working our way through Second Peter, we realize there are so many false teachers on TV for Christianity, but sometimes we can't make it to church on Sunday mornings, like sickness or we're gone out of town, etc. Are there any TV pastors worth our time? Well, that's a tough question for me to answer because I'm never watching TV on Sunday mornings. So I don't know who's on there. I don't really know what to say as far as a possibility. Uh, other than I, what I hear from people, I've I talked to one gentleman recently who said when he travels out of town or he's sick or something, he I don't know where he gets at what station, but he listens to Dr. Adrian Rogers. Now I know of Dr. Adrian Rogers. He was sort of a, a mentor of mine from a distance. Uh, I, uh, I never met him personally. I did hear him in person, but I uh, pastored in Memphis for a lot of years and. Uh, a man of God, and evidently he has a TV program, so uh, that would be one. I know that a number of people like, and I I like most of uh, the uh, messages by Charles Stanley. He's also, I think, on TV quite a bit. Uh, Another one, though I'm disappointed with some of his stands, I don't think he understands the seriousness of some of the false teachers he associates with. He himself is clearly not a false teacher. In fact, he's very good, and that's Dr. David Jeremiah. I think he's on TV uh, so, uh, But again, I'm sorry I can't answer it beyond that because I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I've ever watched a, a Sunday morning a television preacher that I, that I can remember. Except, yes, I do remember being out of town and watching Dr. Stanley one time. It was a very good message. so uh, But be careful with them because, as you said in your question, uh, most are not worth our time. In fact, they're uh, not only a waste of time but damaging. Uh, so just be aware of that. Okay, let's go into the next question. It says this. Uh, Genesis 6 from this morning speaks of the Nephilim being on the earth. Go back there to Genesis 6 where we were this morning. We'll start there, our time in the Word. As I mentioned, because of the number of questions, I'm going to have to move pretty quickly. So I won't be able to give as much uh, information or as many comments as I, was, I would like. Um, uh, but it says in verse f- uh, 4 there were, in different translations here, there were giants on the earth in those days. Uh, The Hebrew word is Nephilim. And many commentators, not all, but many believe that the suggestion of the text here is that these Nephilim came from this union of the sons of God and the daughters of men. So there was this unusual offspring of Nephilim, translated giants, mighty creatures, mighty ones, uh, etc., So here's the question. Genesis 6 speaks of the Nephilim being on the earth in those days and also afterward. If they were present post-flood, if they were present post-flood, and this Hebrew term is used post-flood on an occasion. I believe it's in Numbers. So here's the question. If they were present post-flood, possible examples, Nimrod, uh, Goliath and his kin, Og, etc., is it possible that the line of unusual offspring survived the flood through one of Noah's daughters-in-law, despite the fact that one reason for the flood was to destroy this line? Understand the question? It's a good question. I would say the answer to it is no. Uh, The the fact that the same Hebrew term is used doesn't mean that this uh, line of offspring would have continued, because this Hebrew word, Nephilim, translated giants, mighty ones, mighty creatures, means just that. that The Hebrew term means mighty ones. So it could be applied to if, in fact, the writer of Genesis is suggesting that this offspring or that there was an offspring from this union and they were mighty ones, Nephilim. But the fact that they are called that doesn't mean that every time that Hebrew word appears, it's referring to an unusual offspring of demons and women. Uh, so, uh, the word is used of uh, some, mighty, some mighty people in the land, but that does not mean that it's referring to the same group of people or the same line at all. It just happens to be the same word. It would not be unlike our English term, mighty ones. You could say that, you know, if you were describing Genesis 6 to someone and you believe they did have offspring, you say, and their offspring uh, were characterized as mighty beings... And then you you talk about someone like uh, Goliath of Gath and how huge he was. He was a mighty being. You're not suggesting he was an offspring of a demon and a woman. So it's just the same Hebrew term, but you don't have to try to make the connection. All right, next question says this. uh, The Bible clearly commands us to submit to authority that has been established over us by God. Romans 13, Titus 3, etc., at the same time, we are strongly charged to stand up for the helpless and oppressed, Isaiah 1, Psalm 146, etc. In light of these commands, what is the proper response of Christians worldwide to corrupt and wicked governments that oppress the helpless and openly defy the Lord? There's the question. Here's possible answer. Should we rebel against governments that exploit the helpless? And I would say the answer to that from Scripture is No. Uh, the, the Roman Empire was a mighty, crushing empire. It is the empire that ruled the world. When Jesus was here, when Paul was here, when Peter was here, it's no accident that Paul, in the book of Romans, of all things, chapter 13, says, Submit to your government, knowing that that government was oppressive. It was, uh, uh, it openly defied the Lord. I forget the figure now, but uh, something like, don't quote me on this exact figure, but something like 20. Out of 25 of the Caesars were homosexual. Uh, I mean, it's just open defiance of the Lord and his uh, commands and his gospel, et cetera. And yet, when Paul writes to the Romans, he doesn't say, You know, you're dealing with a corrupt government. You need to rebel against them. You need to defy them. You need to not submit to them. He said the exact opposite. He said, the ex- In fact, some of the strongest words in the Bible about government are in Romans 13. Paul actually has the audacity to call a government official in the Roman government a minister of the Lord. Imagine that. A minister of the Lord. And Peter says the same thing when he writes to Christians who were under the Roman government. So no, I don't think we can justify rebelling against government just because it is either corrupt, wicked, exploits the helpless, etc. If not, were revolutions in ages past to rescue the oppressed in sin for defying their God-established governments? Were they in sin for defying their God-established governments? Well, again, I won't speak, I'm not going to make a blanket statement about the past because one thing you can't do is you, you well, you shouldn't say you can't, it's difficult to do, is to make an assessment on something that you are not there for it. You are not a part of it. So I don't like to be asked about some of these things when I don't know all the all the particulars, et cetera. Uh, all I, I would say is, for example, knowing what I know about the American Revolution, knowing what I know, I don't know all the facts, I wasn't there, but I know that there are some of the things that the you know the original whatever you want to call them patriots freedom fighters did i could not do with a clear conscience i think it would violate scripture um, so what do we do about that well we do uh, exactly what jesus and the apostles did is that is we, you minister to the helpless you minister to the oppressed you you seek to alleviate their their uh difficulties etc but it doesn't give the right doesn't justify uh, rebelling against uh, authority you, if you're going to be faithful to scripture you've got a lot of work to do in romans 13 and first peter two of the strongest passages on submission to government written to christians specifically to christians under Rome. it's a very very clear statement by god in those passages okay next question from a little one uh how do you know god is actually real well a, a couple thoughts on this a couple answers to this question one is Uh, One is, the answer is, from Scripture, certainly an issue of faith, because Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So the Bible acknowledges that believing in God is an issue of faith. Uh, Because you can't see him like you can see this wooden pulpit or you you can see another person, etc. So it is an issue of faith. However, it is not an issue of, uh, what what would I say, uninformed faith. And in fact, in Romans chapter 1, one of the reasons Paul says that humanity is condemned is because they deny the existence of God by suppressing the information that's all around them in creation. In other words... How do we know that God is actually real? Well, it's a matter of faith, but it's a matter of faith that also takes into account the evidence that God has given. And God has given evidence, and scripture repeatedly says this one of God's strongest pieces of evidence for his existence is creation. Because nobody times nothing can't equal everything, it's an utter impossibility. Uh, the, 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 there has to be a cause. And if you look at creation, whether it's on a micro level, DNA, RNA, or on a macro level, the universe and its uh, you know, expanse, when you look at that, the evidence screams that there is a God. In fact, it is so strong that Paul says in Romans 1, those who do not believe in God, basically, here's the word picture he uses, they take the information and they put it in a pot and put a lid on it and sit on it to hold the information down to suppress it. He uses the term to suppress it. Because there is a a screaming evidence, the psalmist says in Psalm 19, in the fact that the sun comes up every day and it's circuit around the earth and so forth, that there is screaming evidence in creation that God exists. So uh, we do take it by faith, but it's not what some people would call a blind faith or an ignorant faith or an uninformed faith. It is actually a faith uh, based on some of the the, the strongest evidence that is available to all mankind universally. All right, next question says this: uh, In does Luke twenty two and in the passage in, in in view here is where Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Okay, so does Luke twenty two suggest that the events in Job one and two are ongoing? In other words that Satan has to present himself to God even today. In other words, we see Satan presenting himself to God, God granting permission for Satan to do things to Job, Job 1 and 2. And now you have a New Testament example in Luke 22, where Jesus specifically said Satan asked for Peter. So, does Luke 22 suggest that the events of Job 1 and 2 are ongoing, that Satan has to present himself to God even today? And secondly... That any direct demonic activity can only exist by God's permission, and I would say yes, that is the implication of those passages. Whether explicitly, in other words, whether you can prove explicitly on every time Satan or demons attack us that they have to go and ask permission, I don't know that you could. You could defend that, but neither could you uh, defend the opposite view. You. you couldn't state that it's it's not a possibility, because the implication is certainly we can say this. If not explicitly, at least implicitly. Uh, it is very clear that Satan can only do what God permits. And now, well, again, whether or not Satan has to ask for every move he makes or every step he takes, we don't know. But I, one of the things I, one of our elders for years, a man with whom I'm really close, uh, appreciate his his prayers. He often says this in his prayers. This just rings in my ears. He just says, "God, thank you that nothing comes into our lives that first has not passed through Your omnipotent hands." And that's a very biblically accurate statement it has to go through god's hands first so if satan is bringing it into our lives it still has to go through god's hands uh, so and then the person says this if so isn't it interesting that people in a sense have more liberty to sin than demons as people will seldomly knowing, knowingly petition god to allow them to sin whereas we see satan in a sense petitioning god for permission all right, next question. Uh, <clears throat> says this, Pastor Brian, you taught in 2 Peter 1, <coughs> 16 to 19, a couple weeks ago, that the Word of God is more authoritative than experience. In light of that reality, what are your thoughts on all the books that, are, that, that record people's supposed experiences of heaven? Well, let me g- just give you my thought, and then I'll briefly try to put some reasons why I, I say this. And I, I hope this isn't I'll just say it. I I don't believe any of them, all right? I I don't believe any of them. Now, let me tell you why. um, Two of the most famous or popular ones, best-selling today, in fact, I looked up on the Internet this afternoon. One of these, I think, has sold 7 million copies. Heaven is for Real by Todd Burpo. Uh, Todd is the dad whose son, Colton, at age 4, supposedly went to heaven. And you can read the book, and he gives us his stories. This is not to be confused with The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven by Kevin Malarkey, whose son Alex at age six supposedly went to heaven. There are six other bestsellers, uh, including probably the one that was the first to lead the way. was 90 Minutes in Heaven by Don Piper. Uh, Now, why don't I believe these books? I'll mention a few reasons. One is, let me just take Don Piper's book. Don Piper's book, in it, it says very specifically, no question whatsoever. He says, when he went to heaven, I did not see God. He, he describes all that he saw. But he said, I did not see God. Okay, His book was a bestseller, sold oh uh, in, uh, a huge amount of, of copies. And so he got on the speaking circuit, and he's going around and he's speaking. And now, years later, on the speaking circuit... I've I've watched the video clips. He describes, now in his speaking, what it was like when he saw God, when he went to heaven. He was asked about this contradiction. In your book, you say you did not see God. Now on your speaking circuit, you say you did see God. How do you explain that? No kidding. Here's his answer. I forgot. That is exactly what he says. I forgot. How can you forget that you saw God? Of all things that you could forget, you cannot forget if you see God. It's just silly. Uh, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven by Kevin Malarkey, the dad writing about his son Alex. This is a fascinating one. Grace to You did a, I don't know what you would call expose or something on the all of these books because there are now uh, these two and then the six other bestsellers, so at least eight really big sellers, and they did something on this. This was amazing. I don't know how widespread this recording is going out. It makes me a little nervous, but I'm going to say it anyway. Grace to you was contacted by Mrs. Malarkey, Kevin's wife, who said, and, of course, when they were contacted, they thought, oh, no, we're going to get blasted because of what we're saying about this. And they were really, think, you know, she said, I am glad you are doing this because none of it's true. None of it's true. And the people at Graced You didn't know how to handle that. They said, Ma'am, are you still married to are, do you guys, are you in the same house? I mean, this is really unusual that you would you would contact us and say that what your husband wrote in this book is not true. But she said, it needs to be exposed. It's not true. Then, other other reason why I don't believe it's true four biblical authors, four men in the Bible, saw heaven, or at least part of heaven. And if you read their descriptions and what they say about the freedom they had to share, what they saw, and freedom they didn't have, etc., those four biblical authors disagree strongly with the descriptions of heaven in Heaven is for real by Todd Burpo, the boy who came back from heaven and these others. I mean, I was reading some this afternoon, again, one of the boys, now I'm getting them mixed up, but one of them tells he saw Satan and what he looked like, he had a funny looking mouth. I mean, it's just silly stuff that you just you would never find in scripture because it doesn't match up with Scripture. So in answer to your question, I think it's a great passage you tie it in with because Peter does say in 2 Peter chapter 1 that the Word of God is more authoritative than any experience, but it's amazing that Christians, to believe in the reality of heaven, and now there's a big one on hell. You've probably read, seen that book. To believe in the reality of heaven and hell, feel like they need these books, even though Scripture says it is more authoritative than anybody's experience. So sadly, uh, I, I don't think. I, I, I no. I don't think that any of these accounts are real. I, I'm not. I'm not questioning. I don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting that all these people are like second peter two false teachers i don't know all of them i don't know what their motives are uh they may be very well-meaning in fact and maybe they think they did because like one of them was a car accident you know and they were in a coma and they thought they went to heaven and one was i think he was having appendectomy and when he was under anesthesia he went to heaven and those kinds of things so you know the mind is a powerful thing and when you're under you know you're in a coma or you're under uh anesthetic or you're you know whatever you you can you can really believe a lot of things so i'm not saying they don't that they're just just lying. Uh, I don't know what they're doing, but but if you ask, you, you the question asked, and I, I don't think that any of these are, are accurate biblically. All right, next question says this. Uh, this is out of 2 Kings chapter 5. So turn with me to 2 Kings 5. This is the story of Naaman the leper. Remember, he was healed. And then uh, in verse 17, Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to Yahweh or to the Lord. And the question is, why did Naaman want Elisha to give him two mule loads of dirt? And the answer to the question, all you have to do is understand a little bit of the ancient Middle East and the thought process. The gods were always connected to the land. In fact, you remember uh, when Israel would be fighting, they would say, oh, we can't fight them in the hills because the God of the hills will win there. We have to fight them in the valley or we can't fight them in the valley. The God of the hills will overpower the God of the valleys. That was just the mindset. Naaman being Middle Eastern, that's the way he thought. So what he is basically saying is, I'm going back to my land, but I'm a worshiper of Yahweh and I'm only going to worship Yahweh. So... I want two mule loads of dirt to be brought back, and I will then you know, p- put the dirt down on the earth from Israel. That is where I will worship God. So it makes sense, again, with the Middle Eastern mindset of what he's requesting and why he would want that. All right, next question says, Please explain the differences between a wife and a concubine. Well, the two primary differences are a concubine was usually a wife who who was a slave so in other words if a man had a big household and he had a number of slaves some of them female slaves and he decided to take one of the females as a wife she had been a slave, she would be called a concubine. Similar to a wife, they would have children, and the children would have an inheritance, but sometimes the inheritance would be different for a concubine's children because it was a slave wife rather than a free wife or a wife as a free woman. So that's basically the difference between a wife and a concubine in the ancient uh, biblical world. All right, next question says this. Uh, comes from uh, this morning. Are the angels, these angels or men, still in the world? No, they are confined. That's what Peter says and Jude says. They are confined. They are in prison awaiting their judgment. Would they be someone I could meet? No, because that is the whole point of both Peter and Jude is that for their actions, God has confined them. Do they know they are angels or demons? Absolutely. They know exactly what they are. They know they're demons. They know what they were doing. They took on human form. They know who they are. Uh, Could they be saved is the last question, and the answer to that is no. Hebrews 2, 14 through 16 specifically says that Jesus bypassed fallen angels to save people. He did not choose to save demons. One reason may be because we as people are a race, and Jesus beca- could become a member of the human race and die once for the human race. He could not die once for all demons. Demons are not a race. They are individual creations. Therefore, hypothetically, if Jesus were going to save demons, he would have to die for each demon individually, something that Hebrews 2 says he chose not to do and bypassed demons to uh to save humans. Alright, next question says this um, Romans eight twenty eight assures us that God uses everything for our good. It seems like a contradiction that this would include my sin. Theologically, how can this happen? And what are maybe some examples of what this might look like practically? Well, I understand the tension this creates in our mind, but let me just say this. It's important that we understand that God using all things for our good, even our sin, does not mean that he condones our sin. But what the statement is saying is that God is so remarkable in the way he works that he can and does use everything for our good. And you have rightly assumed that would even include our sin you say, well, what are some examples or how could this work practically? Well, for example, let's say this. Let's say that you as a Christian go out and get drunk. Ephesians 5.18 specifically says don't do that. Do not be drunk with wine. So you go out and get drunk, which would be a sin. It would be wrong. And on your way home, you wreck your car. And as a result of wrecking your car, that is a huge wake-up call to you. And you realize, I could have ended my own life. I could have killed an innocent child. I I will never drink alcohol again. So God used your sin, in that case, to bring good, that is, a greater realization of the consequences or potential ramifications of sin. Maybe you even go on to exhort other Christians. You need to be really take very seriously what Ephesians 5.18 says. And so God even uses you now in the lives of other Christians, maybe some of your friends who, who are believers, but don't take seriously the command, do not be drunk. And so now God is, in a sense, giving you a ministry to other people and also done something good in your life. That's just an illustration of how it could work. So does God then, in, in that kind of scenario, is God using even your sin for good? Yes. Does that mean your sin is not sin? No. Does it mean that God condones the sin? Absolutely not. But God is even able to take our sin and use it for good. And there, you, you could multiply examples of this. You could even go back to Joseph. And, of course, it's debatable whether his, his telling about his dreams was a sin or not. Some commentators say he was kind of bragging and, you know, a little bit arrogant, saying, I'm going to rule over you, et cetera. Well, that made his brothers hate him. And if, if that was, you know, a lack of maturity, arrogance, and he sinned, you know What? God even used that for good because God was going to get Joseph down into Egypt. One way or another, God was going to get in there because God had a plan to use Joseph to rescue his own family and also uh, all of the Egyptians. So if you would say that was a sin on Joseph's part, is it okay that he sinned in that way? No. Does God condone it? No. Did God use it for good without condoning it? Absolutely he did. And there are multiple examples. So, yes, Romans eight twenty eight is true. God uses everything for our good. He even uses our sin. But this, be careful. This should not cause us to take our sin lightly and somehow think, well, God's just going to use it for good, so it's no big deal. Because the consequences of sin, the ramifications of sin, are extremely serious, as Scripture tells us. All right, next question says this. If the Bible says there will be no sadness or suffering in heaven... Does that mean we will not be sad that some of my friends or family members are not there? And the answer to that question, even though, and this is written by a little one, I can tell by the handwriting, a youngster, uh, even though you will not be able to wrap your mind around it, the answer to that question is yes. You will, or no, you will not be sad, or yes, you will not be sad, whichever is the right way to say that. You will not be sad. Let me say it that way, all right? However, just a couple thoughts there. One is, And I don't want to read too much into the text, but the Bible does say in Revelation 21 that God is going to wipe away every tear. Which may, and I only say may, indicate that it's possible that at the outset of eternity there could be some sadness that God wipes away and gives us perspective on so that throughout the rest of eternity there's no sorrow, no sadness, etc. I'm not saying that is the case. I'm saying it's a possibility. Uh, But, An even better explanation is just to realize it's something, it's just something beyond, and and this is a little person. I don't know if it's a little guy or a little gal who wrote this, but it's something you, whoever wrote this, will not be able to understand because even your parents and your spiritual leaders can't understand. I love the way Corey Ten Boom's dad used to say to her uh, when she would ask a question that she just couldn't comprehend. Her dad would say to her, Honey, go over and pick up that suitcase, a real heavy suitcase. And she would go over and she couldn't pick it up. And he would say, you can't pick that up. It's just too big for you to handle. And that's the way this question is. That's the way he instructed. It's just too big for you to handle. You can't handle it. Maybe when you get bigger, you can pick it up. You can't pick it up right now. And that's where a lot of us get to on this issue. But the Bible is clear that throughout eternity, no tears, no sorrow, no sadness, etc. And how that coordinates with our loved ones that aren't there, uh, only eternity will completely answer for us. All right, next question, Matthew chapter 11. Let's turn to Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus said, and if you are willing to receive it, he, he's referring to John the Baptist in this context, he is Elijah who is to come. So the question is: Does Matthew eleven fourteen mean that John the Baptist is Elijah? Could you explain what Jesus meant? This is a little bit complicated. So, um, no, John the Baptist was not Elijah. Okay, John himself in John chapter one verse twenty one states that he is asked, "Are you Elijah?" and he says, "I am not." So that one we take off the table. He was not Elijah. However, in Luke, I believe it's Luke one seventeen, in prediction of John's birth, it was said he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And in Malachi 4, there is a promise that before the coming of the Messiah, uh, Elijah, or one coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah, would be a forerunner of the Messiah. So the answer to your question is, was John the Baptist, Elijah, reincarnated in the flesh? No. Did he fulfill the prophecy of Malachi 4? Yes. Did he come in the spirit and the power of Elijah? Yes. So that's what Jesus is saying, which is probably why he words it this way. And if you are willing to receive it, in other words, this is going to be hard for you to grasp and grab hold of, but if you're willing to receive it, if you can grab hold of this, he is Elijah who is to come. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is important. You need to wrestle through this one. You need to think through this one. So that would be the answer to the question. Not Elijah physically, but in the spirit and power of Elijah. Our next question, Titus chapter 1. Turn over to Titus chapter 1. And this question, I believe, even though it's not really stated here, but just by the the phraseology of the question, I think, comes from Titus 1, 6, talking about elders, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. And then the question is this, as per requirements listed for elders, at what point in time should an elder step down or withdraw his name if his family or children are unruly or unbelieving? This is a a really complicated question on several levels. Let me see if I can quickly uh, hit it. Uh, First of all, you notice probably, unless you happen to use the King James and New King James, your translation of verse 6 reads differently than what I just read. That is because the King James and I, I think I mean the New King James and I think the King James translate this having faithful children whereas most other English translations say children who believe. So now that's our first issue. And I bumped into this when I was preaching through Titus years ago. Commentators, scholars and theologians are divided over this. Is Paul saying believers Or faithful children. Now, here are the issues. Those that say it should be translated believers say that's the majority of the way this word is used, which is true. Those who went with the the, uh, translation faithful children say, well, if you translate it believing children, then what you are saying is that a man is in control of, can mandate and guarantee that all of his kids become Christians. And can a man guarantee that? Can any man guarantee that all his kids will become Christians? Uh, believers i mean the only perfect parent was god and his first two kids adam and eve rebelled so is it a guarantee that a man can mandate and so those in the translation of the new king james said this must be now i'm not saying they're right i'm just telling you what the issues are that make this complicated this must mean faithful children reliable children and in fact they would say the context argues for that because paul explains what he means not accused of dissipation incorrigibility, debauchery, or insubordination. So that's one issue, and there's quite a division in, in the conservative scholarly realm. Is Paul saying that a man's kids have to be all believers to be an elder? So if that is the translation you go with, and thus the interpretation you go with, it still doesn't solve the issue because it says, the translation says, believing children. Now that raises this question. All children believers, so if a man has five kids, Four are believers and one is not. He can't be an elder. Does believing children mean all believers, or at least some of them have to be believers? Or what if a man is an elder and his kids are, let's say, his oldest kid is twelve and hasn't yet surrendered his life to Christ? So he doesn't have believing children. He's disqualified from being an elder because his twelve-year-old hasn't yet received Christ. Is that what? It, now some would say yes. I'm not saying yes or no. I'm just explaining how complicated this is. Or what about this? A man becomes a believer later in his life. He has, let's just say, two kids. They're grown. They're married. He becomes a believer, walks with the Lord faithfully for years, becomes exemplary in his life, meets all the qualifications of an elder, but he's got two grown kids, neither of whom had any exposure to the gospel, and they don't know the Lord. They're not believers. Is that man disqualified from being an elder? He doesn't have believing children. They are grown. They're somewhere else. They're not believers. So it, it is, it's a lot more complicated than you might, might think at first. So in answer to your question, I would just say this. Is, your question says at what point, I would say this, because of the, the complicated nature of it, that I believe it comes down to the consensus of the elders and spiritual leaders in a given setting. In other words, if the elders feel like one of them in their midst, one of their fellow team members, his shepherding of his family is such that it would be best for him to withdraw his name or step aside, then that's what should be done. But it probably should be the consensus of the elders working through the passage and say, is this man, uh, a, a faithful shepherd in his family? Is he not? Uh, is, is his family a, uh, disqualification? Is it not? So, uh, all that to say, I can't answer your question with a neat little package because it's way more complicated than you might think when you first put it out there. Uh, other, so in answer, I would just say the consensus the, con, the consensus wisdom viewpoint of the elders in a given setting would be, I think, I, I would be most comfortable with in the safest route to go and trying to determine that on an individual case-by-case basis. All right, next question says this. Um, are there actual demons in human form today? Maybe some of the false teachers today are that. Um, I don't think they are, there are, and let me explain why. The demons who are free know what happened to the demons in Genesis 6. And we know from Jesus' ministry that demons do not want to be confined. They, don't want, they want to be free. They beg Jesus not to send them into the pit or the abyss. So my assumption is, knowing what happened to those demons in Genesis 6... Demons that want to stay free are not going to copy the same thing. So I doubt, seriously, I couldn't say dogmatically, I doubt seriously that there are actual demons in human form today, like what we saw in Genesis 6. I think that the rest of the demons that are free learned a lesson from watching that. And if they want their freedom until they're judged, they're not going to do that. And then the follow-up question, why wouldn't God have consigned all demons to Tartarus? Sure would have been a lot easier for us. Well, that is true, but you can ask the same question of why did God even create Adam and Eve, knowing that they were going to sin? Why did, I mean, you, you know, you can keep going back on that question. Uh, God God knows what he's doing. His plan is perfect, uh, but he did not consign all the demons to Tartarus. All right, next question. We have just a, a two or three more here, and we'll call it a night. Uh, it says, in recent sermons, the term spiritual growth has been used. Please describe the difference between how this is meant in the Bible and the popular meaning in the secular world This term is frequently used by non-Christians nowadays and and one can find many books in the secular bookstores which attempt to help people grow spiritually without any reference to Christ. People in AA also want to grow spiritually but not necessarily with reference to Christian experience. Some persons who heartily are pursuing spiritual growth seem to have a lot of peace or contentment in their lives, in their relationships, though not Christ-centered. You're absolutely right. Uh, And I would say the difference is this. When the Bible talks about spiritual growth, it is talking about growing strong in a relationship with Jesus Christ versus or in comparison to things like the power of positive thinking. or or, or visualization, power of visualization, or meditation to achieve nirvana, or even borrowing biblical practices like uh, some of these books espouse overlooking offenses in others. Your life will have a lot more peace if you just overlook, uh, you know, others' offenses. Well, you know, that's a biblical principle overlooking offenses. So if a non-Christian takes that and says, you know what, I'm not going to get all wound up and tied up in knots over all my friends and family members who do things wrong. I'm just going to learn to overlook it. They probably will have more peace in their lives, probably will have better relationships. They're borrowing a Christian principle, but that's not spiritual growth in the biblical sense of growing in your relationship with Christ. A follow-up, another word that is now popular among people is grace. Movies, books, secular counselors are using this word quite quite freely recently as a good thing to have in one's life and to relate to other people with, probably also to think of God as showing to people also. But the real biblical definition seems to be known very vaguely. Could you please define clearly what the Bible means when it uses this word and why the pop, general popularity of this word has come about. How is the Bible's meaning the same or different from the current popular understanding? Well, two quick comments. One is there is a such thing as common grace from God. All theologians recognize that. So don't assume that if a person is a non-Christian, they really can have no grace in their lives because all good theologians recognize what they call common grace. God grants common grace to mankind, lost and saved alike. So there can be that. However, your question is valid in that the primary way the word grace is used in Scripture is in reference to the unmerited favor God grants to the repentant sinner through faith in Christ. And that is not what people mean by it in the secular world when they use grace that is the vast majority usage in scripture the unmerited favor god grants to the repentant sinner through faith in christ okay last question actually a youngster turned into just a bullet point questions i'll go through these quickly what is sheol sheol is the old testament term that means the place where dead people go that's all it means. It doesn't specify good, bad. It can be translated the grave. It can be translated heaven, uh, Hades. It's just Sheol is where dead people go. To answer it more specifically, you have to see who the person is and what is saying in the context because the word just means it's where dead people go. It right? doesn't indicate good or bad. Uh, What is the antecedent of it is finished? It in in the phrase, it is finished. Well, that's an English translation. The Greek word tetelestai could be translated paid in full. So it obviously is referring to what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and he was saying, I paid it in full. Our English renders it, it is finished, and then you end up looking for an antecedent that's not there. So maybe in your mind, just go with paid in full. Uh, where was Jesus the three days he was dead? Well, he was with his father initially because he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And as we saw this morning, when he left the father to enter back into his body, he went to the demons in prison, the ones that were confined there, to announce victory and, uh, over them and judgment over them. So he was with the father until he made that announcement and made his way back into his body to be raised. Next question, where did the Old Testament Uh, believers go after they died, they went to be with the Lord. Jesus used this reality when he said in in the Pentateuch, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not I was, I am, present tense. And God said that years after they were dead, indicated he was still their God. They were still alive. Jesus used that as proof for life after death that people don't cease to exist, that they continued and God was still their God. And that's why in the New Testament, Luke 16, there is the phraseology of going to Abraham's bosom because you want to go to Abraham's bosom where Abraham was because Abraham's in paradise or with the Lord. And then the final question, how do we know what all the books of the Bible are? Yeah, a really simple question to end with, right? The whole issue of canonicity, which would take about four months to explain. So let me just say this. Uh, The youngster who asked this question, get your mom or dad to, well this is Father's Day, get your dad to get you uh, a copy of the book by Dr. Erwin Lutzer, Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust the Bible, and just go through that. And uh, even though you're a youngster, some of the concepts may be a little difficult to comprehend, but it's a great very practical explanation of how we know that the 66 books in the Bible are the ones that belong in the Bible, not 67, not 65. So that's the quickest way I can answer that. Seven reasons why you can trust the Bible by Dr. Irwin Lutzer. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Father, thanks for our time together this evening, and uh, thank you for the many questions that were turned in. And even though we had to run through them hurriedly and the responses were brief, we, I do pray, Father, that maybe it was somewhat helpful just to at least give some initial thoughts uh, to the person asking the question if he or she happen to really be wrestling through that and uh, that particular question or that particular issue. Uh, Thank you for our day, this Lord's Day, for a chance to be with your people. And thank you for your your goodness, your blessing to us in so many ways. And we pray you would uh, dismiss us now with your blessing to be salt and light to the people in our world, in our circle, in our neighborhood, in our family, wherever that is. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.